The Fake Show Podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison & Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-Shirt Designs, Mr. Antenna, and by Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. Now your host, Jim Tofty. This is how it all started 57 years ago. Now yesterday and today our theater has been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city... Never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now and again in the second half of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Let's Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. It was February 7th, 1964, when that Pan Am Yankee Clipper Flight 101 from London landed at New York's Kennedy Airport and Beatlemania arrived. It was the first visit to the United States by the Beatles, who had just scored their first number one hit in the U.S. six days before with I Want to Hold Your Hand. Two days later, they make this first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, and an estimated 73 million viewers, which was then 40% of the U.S. population, tuned in to watch. Let's talk some more about it with Rolling Stone, Wall Street Journal, and Esquire music journalist Jeff Slate. Jim in Las Vegas. Let's talk some Beatles, buddy. How you doing? You got it, Jeff. Welcome, and hopefully you're doing well, staying healthy there. I think you're in New York, New York City. I am in New York City, Jim. And you're doing well. I, I'm I'm hanging in there. It's a little, you know, it's a little grim. We 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 periodically we get a reprieve and we get out for a little bit, but right now people are pretty hunkered down. We had some pretty bad snow, and the pandemic is sort of you know, still wreaking havoc. But, you know, New York is resilient. It's like Vegas. We bounce back. We're all right. We'll hang in there. That's for sure. Well, yeah, and we are talking the Beatles, uh, the first visit to America 57 years ago this month. Jeff, I was a little kid, but I remember the reaction of my dad, who was just shocked at how they looked and sounded. I don't know what your experience is. Yeah, I, I was not around yet, but I've heard Hell of the <laughs> of the stories, and and I and I liken it to uh, years later when I saw um, Little Richard on I think it was the Mike Douglas show with my grandfather in the room, and he just winced every time Richard did anything. <laughs> it was so outrageous, <laughs> you know. But but I've talked about you know most every musician I've ever interviewed or or worked with who were around at the time. You know, Tom Petty told me a great story. He had he had met Elvis on the set of Follow That Dream because his uncle worked on on the movie when they were shooting in Florida. Yeah. And and that changed his life. But he said when he saw the Beatles on television that night, it was like the world went from black and white to color. He wanted to he wanted to be in a gang because they looked like they were having so much fun. You know, it wasn't just about the songs or the look or whatever. They looked like they were having a great time and they looked like, you know, they were so different that I think the rebelliousness of it certainly appealed to him, but also they, they were doing this thing together. And I think that's what appealed to all the, the young people who picked up guitars and, and started playing in their garages and basements over the next couple of years. And it was such a counterpoint, wasn't it? I mean, Top 40 Radio at that time, until the Beatles got there, was Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Mitch Miller. There was the occasional Elvis, but I mean... It was just a totally different thing, wasn't it? Well, you've got to remember, you know, there was there was sort of the first burst of rock and roll in the 50s, but then, you know, Elvis was in the Army, Chuck Berry was in jail, 
Jerry Lee Lewis had been disgraced, Little Richard had found God. So the, the charts just before the Beatles hit were really like, you know, the top of the charts just a few months prior were how much is this doggy in the window? And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you've got I want to hold your hand. I mean, if you just think about that, you know, you play those against each other when we when we wrap up and people go, what? <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, it's just, it's sort of unbelievable. And and you have to remember, this was a new and different sound. You know, the, George Martin and Brian Epstein, their producer and manager, had played these records for Capitol Records. They didn't want them. They didn't think they'd be friendly to American ears. So they had to farm them out to these little labels. And, and they didn't really do very much business because there wasn't much promotional clout behind them. But they, they chipped away and chipped away and chipped away until finally they were able to sort of break out. And, and I think in no small part because Ed Sullivan saw, saw them at Heathrow Airport and saw this big crowd greeting them coming back from Sweden where they'd only been second bill on a radio show and thought, I want some of that. That's like the Elvis thing. Let's get them on the show. But Brian Epstein, their manager, had the foresight to say, rather than take the big money and do one show, let's take scale and we'll do the top and the bottom of the show for three weeks with top billing. And I think that was something that really was, you know, people, people criticize him, but he was making it up as he went along. He was inventing the job of rock and roll manager, much, much in the way Tom Parker had done for Elvis. So hey, That whole thing about Ed Sullivan seeing them at Heathrow, that was kind of a, a lucky, fortunate situation. I'm sure the Beatles would have broken through eventually here in the States, but it sure got the ball rolling earlier than it would have, didn't it? Any fan of the Beatles, and we're all fans of the Beatles, we all think we're like the number one fan. <laughs> we love all the minutia. We'll tell you that there were a lot of those moments where, you know, Ringo joining the band or the global broadcast for all you need is love or, you know, whatever happened, you know, George meeting Ravi Shankar, all these things that sort of set them on a different path. The Ed, Ed Sullivan seeing them at that airport was one of those pivotal moments that you're right. Maybe if it hadn't happened, they would have still been the Beatles. They still, still probably would have broken through, but not in the way that they did where 73 million people, when that really meant something, were watching uh, that night and the next morning, everybody was at work, everybody was at school talking about these four guys. And what did we just think? What the heck was that? <laughs> and kids are so smart. They always know what's going to happen before adults do. But in this case, why were the girls in the audience of that first Ed Sullivan show appearance screaming? What did they know about the Beatles? How did they hear about them before any of us did? I mean, it was just a shocker. You know, I, <laughs> that's a, that's a great question. I've, I've, you know, I know people have written literally books about that first visit to America. There was something so different and carefree and charming and, and just handsome. You know, they looked great. They had these great suits and, and their hair, although it was crazy and wild and long for the time, you know, there was something so magnetic about those four guys. And I think that's, that's the difference too, between a lot of the artists of that era these were four guys who could play and sing and were handsome and charming and witty. You know, I think I, I, can, I can only speak secondhand, but I think to any, any young female in 1964, that's pretty attractive when, when the guys in your high school are, you know, maybe not that. That's a good point. That's a good point. And as you mentioned, they 
looked and sounded so great on stage. They were so polished from those years of those gigs in Hamburg and the UK. I'm wondering, did we take that for granted, how incredibly professional and tight they sounded on those first appearances? Yeah, I mean, you know, Keith Richards has a great line a couple of years ago in an interview where he said, you know, we were a better band live than the Beatles. I think any bootleg or video proves that that's just not true. They were an amazing rock and roll band. John Lennon always said they were a better band before Ed Sullivan when they were playing in clubs in in Liverpool and Hamburg because they rocked out and wore the leather and the whole thing. But you got to remember, they had put in way more than their Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. These were guys who already could play. You know, George, George, even when he joined the band, was an accomplished guitarist. He was one of the best guitarists in Liverpool. Now, that may not have been saying much in 1961 or two, but, you know, he he grew. They all grew. They were all seekers. They all wanted to be the best. They were driven and competitive and ambitious and, like we said, you know, sort of smart and funny in, in, a, in an unusual way. And I think that that was a combustible combination. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, you look at those videos, and John is playing rhythm guitar like it's nothing, like he's not even doing it. You know, they're, they're sort of effortless. And, and I think that's, there's something really magnetic about that effortlessness, too. I think you're right. 1964 is such a blur. They were producing albums at such a, an incredible pace. Plus, how did they find the time to act and produce A Hard Day's Night and do all that stuff in that one year? Yeah, I, I, I did a piece for Esquire a few years ago about how they invented the stadium tour. And one of the people I talked to was Giles Martin, and he said he had access to his dad's diaries when they were doing one of the projects, and he said there was never a day off. You know, if there was a day or an... They would literally have a morning off, they'd go to Abbey Road Studios, record, and then in the afternoon they had to be out the door because they had to drive up to Manchester in the van and play a gig, and then they'd be back in the studio in London the next day. There, I think between sort of, you know, mid-62, late, early 63, until about... Uh, you know, to the end of their touring years at Candlestick Park in 66, they never, ever, ever took more than a couple of days off. You know, I think that when they talk about their vacations in the anthology and the anthology book, they were just a couple of days to like a Greek island, and then they were back, back on the road. Yeah. So they didn't leave much room to be anything other than the Beatles. It's incredible. And I mean, groups at that time, you you hear Mick Jagger and other people say this, well, we'll do this for a year or two and then move on to something else. This can't last forever. Well, it was this roller coaster. I think they just kept going and going and going, thinking eventually the wheels would come off and they never did. And here we are, 57 years later, still talking about this one television show. Uh, You know, that's just remarkable. I mean, I think when, when history is written and 100 or 200 or 300 years, people will look back on the late latter half of the 20th century and say, wow, these Beatles were pretty much something else. Everybody else is great, too, but the Beatles were, were really the top of the heap. Jeff, nice talking to you. It's music journalist and songwriter Jeff Slate. Always a pleasure. Uh, hopefully we can catch up some other time. Thanks, Jim. Anytime, and thanks to the listeners for checking in. All right, buddy. Bye-bye.
I'm always running into Jeff's columns in various publications, and you can also read more great stuff at jeffslatehq.com. And by the way, if you're looking for the best weekly Beatles show on the radio, make sure you tune in to Dennis Mitchell's Breakfast with the Beatles. Well, that finishes off this Beatles edition of the Fake Show podcast. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you back here next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. Try to save